All right, I'm very excited for the message this morning because we are wrapping up our series, Uncomfortable. And as you know, if you have been here the last several weeks, we have been dealing with topics that are very difficult to talk about, questions that we have that we don't always have the answer to. And today is really unique because you have been sending in questions over the last four weeks, questions that you've had about the Bible, about life, uh, things that have been rolling around in your mind and you want an answer too. And you have sent in nine or 29 questions over the last three or four weeks. And so uh, good job to you guys for sending in some questions. I'm excited to jump in today. Uh, the whole heart behind this really comes out of 1 Corinthians chapter number seven. You can read about that when you get home. But Paul is writing to the church in Corinth and he says, now concerning the matters that you wrote. And so I think sometimes as a preacher that uh, we can have a tendency to talk about things, but don't always answer the questions you have. And so we want to give the congregation, you, an opportunity to send in those questions so that we can give you answers the best we can from the Word of God. Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of God. And so today, our goal is to increase your faith by presenting to you the Word of God to the, to the questions that you have. Um, obviously, I need to give you some disclaimers on this type of message. Uh, when, you, when you start uh, working through questions like this, a a lot of the questions that were sent in could, could cover an entire message. And so uh, today, I'm giving you an answer that might take one or two minutes, uh, encompassing a very complex question. So this is really not meant to answer every rabbit trail that you could take, every nuance of the question. Rather, it's to be a platform that you can jump off of for your own personal study that you can dive into. Uh, also, it's very unlikely that we will get to every question today, obviously. Uh, and I will try to answer those in the coming weeks, perhaps even through our Word Wednesday. Uh, the reason why I have my computer today is you can still upvote. If you go to our link, pollev.com forward slash J first, uh, you can upvote or even perhaps send in questions. If you send a funny question in, there's a good chance I will ask it just so uh, I can have some comic relief. So the, the burden is on you, okay, to uh, send in some, some funny questions. All right, we're going to go ahead and pray, and then we're going to jump in this morning. Lord, we just come before you, and as we study your word, I pray that you would help it come alive to us. Lord, I pray that we would learn that when we have questions in life, we can come to you. And Lord, we know that you have the answer for every single situation we face in life. And I pray today that our faith would increase as we study the Word of God, as we ask questions of it, and we dive into the nuances of that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to start with the easiest question that somebody sent in, and that question was this. Where did Cain's wife come from? All right? It's like, now wait a second. Adam and Eve, they had kids. What, what's the situation there? Where did Cain's wife come from? Well, the, the answer is this, and this might make us a little bit uncomfortable, right? But Cain's wife was either his sister or his niece. Ugh, weird, right? <laughs> that, that, my thoughts exactly. In our culture, obviously, this is a, a, a weird concept. This is a hard thing to wrap our minds around. Uh, obviously, this would not uh, fly today, but it's important to remember this. You cannot compare the first people that God created to our modern-day culture. 
right? That's, that's, that's not a proper uh, comparison to make. Obviously, today, uh, incest is, is forbidden in Scripture. It's a social taboo, uh, and that is because of the genetic complications that incest brings over a long period of time. However, we have to remember that Adam and Eve would have been genetically pure, and so there would have been no other options for Cain other than to marry his niece or his sister, and so that concept would not have been strange. Now, the reason why I believe this question is important is because there's some spiritual ramifications to this question. I want to read to you a passage of scripture. Uh, Genesis chapter number three, verse 20, it says this, the man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. So we know from scripture that every single person can trace their lineage back to Adam and Eve. Eve was the mother of all people. So right there, that gives us the answer, where did his wife come from? But there's also the spiritual and the theological ramification to that, and that is this. We are all one race. They're not multiple races, right? There might be different skin tones. There might be different cultural heritage, but we are one race, and that is the human race, And that's very important to understand that we are one race because when humanity sinned, we are all in this thing together. You sinned, I sinned, Adam and Eve sinned, we all sinned. And because we are one race, when Jesus came and he was wrapped in flesh as a man and died on the cross for our sins, his blood was sufficient to save every single person who ever lived and every single person who will ever live. His blood covered all of our sins. Why? Because we are one people. So in the, in the body of Christ, they talked about this a lot. There was not Jew. There was not Gentile. There were Christians. There were believers. And then there were non-believers. But every person could be saved because Jesus was a man. Now, furthermore, that, that, that reality brings another implication. That is this, that the church is the answer for every division that comes into our country today, right? If you want the answer for our racial divides in our country, the church is the answer. Why? Because we believe that we're all brothers and sisters, and we believe that Jesus came to die for every single one of us. So while this question about Cain's wife seems uncomfortable, The theology and the ramifications by that are incredibly profound. And if we all didn't trace our heritage back to one couple, Adam and Eve, then we are in a world of hurt because Jesus couldn't have died for us. So I'm thankful that we're all all family. So when we say welcome to the family, we really mean it around here, all right? (laughs) Weird fact, you can go back and almost every single one of us are connected back to seven generations. It's not that far away. So Welcome to the family, right? All right, awesome. Hey, so the rest of these questions, I'm going to go as close as I can to uh, the popularity of the question that was asked towards the top. And the number one asked question on our poll was this. Is there ever a situation in which abortion is okay? Is there ever a situation in which abortion is okay? This was the number one question, asked question, and and obviously to adequately answer this question, we would need an entire message to cover that topic, Um, and and perhaps I will do that next year in a series similar to this, but I'm going to try to be concise in answering this question, and I want to start by giving you some statistics to build this foundation on. Uh, These are statistics that are very easy for you to verify. You can start uh, doing some research, and you can verify what I'm telling you, but the reality is is 92.5% of all abortions are performed as a matter of convenience. 
meaning abortion was performed. And the reason why it was performed was either for financial reasons, season of life, or family dynamics. There was one of those three issues ties back. Uh, you see the most common group of, of people who are receiving an abortion are not teenagers. It's actually between the ages of 20 and 34. And so what you see is, is, that, uh, is that ladies will get pregnant and then there's not the social or there's not the financial uh, stability in order to have children. Um, it's the wrong season and there's a lot of fear there. And so there will be an abortion performed uh, to, to get out of that situation. Uh, you will also start doing some statistical research, and you'll see that somewhere around 40% of all abortions that are performed are performed on a mother who already has children, and, and she just is at a place where she cannot have uh, another child financially. Uh, if you get on Planned Parenthood's website, it will list eight reasons why someone might want to consider having an abortion. Six of them are a matter of convenience. One is due to sexual assault, and one is due to the quality of life of of the future uh, child due to a birth defect. And I want to read a scripture, Genesis 9, 6. God is speaking, and here's what God says. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And I'm about to make a very strong statement, but I believe it with all my heart. Statistically speaking, abortion in the United States is violence to the image of God in the name of convenience. Murder is sin. And murder is violence to the image of God. And abortion is sin, period. And so when we start talking about is there ever a reason, 92.5% of all abortions are absolutely without a doubt committed outside of the realm of possibility because the Bible says it's murder. It's murder. Now, that, that's the easy one to, to, to start to talk about. Now, we could talk about why and what should be some solutions, all of those type of things. I'm very opinionated on that. I'm sure if you ask Miss Erica Blankenship, she has a lot of opinions on this as well. Uh, the church needs to step up. We need to be the solution. How are we the solution? By taking kids in. We need to, we need to take our call serious for the widows and the orphans. And I believe that a lot of mothers uh, get afraid, obviously, because they don't have the support. Men um, have, uh, frankly, not to be crass, but used them and then left them. And that's not right. And so the church needs to be there to be the solution. And because uh, we're not the solution, a lot of women don't feel like they have another option. We're not going to go into all that. The question then comes down to the 7.5% of abortions that are performed in the name of sexual assault or medical complications. And I understand this is a very sensitive topic, and I understand that I have not been there myself. Um, I do not believe under any circumstances that, that there's any biblical permission to have an abortion ever, ever. Now, understand when I'm saying pregnancy, I'm, I'm talking about pregnancies. A lot of uh, people have asked me over the years about uh, eptopic pregnancies in which a fertilized egg gets lodged in the fallopian tube. Um, that is not a pregnancy according to the definition of the Bible. Um, that is what I would consider a miscarriage. That's, that's, a, that's a situation in which um, there was a miscarriage that happened and a medical procedure needed to be done. Um, having said that, with the rest of what we would consider uh, a pregnancy, um, where a life has started inside of the womb, I don't believe there's ever a situation where the Bible permits uh, the termination of that. And here's why. Because when we make a decision to end a pregnancy, what we're doing is we're choosing to play God. And that's important to understand. Because what we're saying is that we know better about the outcome of this human life than God does. 
Now, obviously, we're dealing with very, very difficult situations, but we need to talk about them. We need to talk about them. So let's break this down. Is there ever a reason to end a life for a, a, a birth defect that we can see? We know there's a birth defect coming, and should we, should we end that life? Um, I've read a lot of articles and in, in, in research in this, and, and a lot of people have done that. People who, husbands wise, wanting to have a child, they realize that this child is, has some sort of birth defect and that its quality of life is going to be greatly diminished. Um, perhaps that child is even going to die very quickly outside the womb, and they choose to have an abortion. Um, and, and they say, we don't want that. We want the child, but we feel like this is best for the child. And I would caution against that because as soon as we make that decision, we say we know the outcome of that life better than God. We say that, that, that God did not have a purpose in that life. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. Why does God allow suffering? And we believe that God works out all things for his good and for the good of that person. And so when we start saying, well, we see a birth defect, there's going to be no quality of life there. We should end that in the womb. Then what we're saying is that God has no purpose for that person. And I think that's violence to his image. And I don't think that's good. Last time I read, the Bible says that God predestined us for good works, and God did not limit those good works to quote-unquote normal people. Sexual assault is another terrible thing. However, um, God still has a purpose for that life. You know, in preparing this message, I had a conversation with Charity many years ago. I was thinking about, you know, and we were talking about this very issue and said, God forbid something like that happened in our own family, what would we do? what we do. And I, I know that I'm speaking from a place I haven't been there, but I, I, don't, I don't see how I could ever go down the road of saying we need to terminate that, that pregnancy. Why? Because God has a plan. And ultimately what it comes down to is it comes down to trusting God more than I trust what I see. And that's what it means to be a Christian, trusting God with everything, the good things, the easy things, the hard things. Now, having said that, I, I, I don't believe there's ever a case in which abortion is okay, but I also understand perhaps that there are people in this room who have had an abortion and have experienced the guilt, the condemnation, the brokenness that comes with that. Um, frankly, uh, from my opinion, abortion is peddled on people who are incredibly vulnerable in the moment, and I think that's wrong, and I think a lot of people have made a decision that they wish they could go back and change, and they regret it. And here's what I want you to know, that God forgives, God heals, and God restores He always does. Abortion is a sin, but it's not an unpardonable sin by any means. Abortion leaves scars, but God heals scars. Abortion leaves pain, but God is the healer of our pain. Moving on to the next question. How do I overcome anxiety? Or I have really bad social anxiety. Is there a way I can get over that? Those two questions kind of go hand in hand. I want to answer those together. Uh, this is a very complicated question, uh, obviously, so to give a s- short answer is not going to apply maybe to every, but I want to hit the mountaintops with this. Um, I do want to put a plug in, though. You should come next week because next week we're starting our Christmas series and we're leading off uh, our Christmas series talking about peace. And so um, I'm going to dive into this a little bit deeper next week and you should be here. But here's the things I want you to see. The 30,000 foot view when it comes to anxiety is that all anxiety is rooted in fear. All anxiety is rooted in fear. Anxiety is fear of something that has not happened yet or fear of something that has happened in the past that I'm afraid is going to happen again, right? And so we're we're afraid, and that builds up anxiety in our life. For example, I got into a really bad car accident a few years ago. Now I'm afraid to get in the car because I think it's going to happen again. I have anxiety every time I see it. 
Or if I drive over a bridge, I have anxiety of falling into the water. Charity. I'm just kidding. <laughs> She's writing this down. Right? So fear of something that has happened in the past, repeating itself. People have wounded me. People are bailed out on me. Or fear of something happening that has not happened yet. All right? Um, that is a, the fundamental definition of anxiety is fear. Now, obviously, there's a lot of nuances to that, but, but for our purposes, that's what we're going to stick with. And here's the thing that you have to understand about fear is that when we were created in the Garden of, of Eden and God placed humanity there, humanity was created in the image of God. And what that means is we have some of the characteristics of God. We have free will. We have emotion. We have the ability to love. But here's what I want you to catch. It's highly unlikely that Adam and Eve had the emotion of fear. Why? There was nothing to be afraid of. They were not going to die. There was no sin. There was no calamities in the world. They were there. God was going to take care of everything. So it's highly unlikely that they had the ability to be afraid. Adam and Eve had no reason to be afraid. However, when they sinned, the very first emotion that they felt was fear. Fear rushed into their life, and they ran from God. It is my belief that humanity was never created to walk in fear. We were not designed to deal with fear. Fear is this extra emotion that we experience that God never intended for us to carry. Now, some fear that we have is, is good, right? I, I should be afraid of stepping out in front of an oncoming bus, right? That should put some fear in my life because that is protecting me. But obviously, that's not what we're, we're talking about. There's a whole kind of other fear, and there's a lot of anxiety rooted in fear um, of something that, that we shouldn't be afraid of. And here's what I want you to see. We allow the creative energy that God has given us to think up fearful scenarios that are never going to happen. Or we use this creative energy to relive fearful scenarios over and over again. So how do we overcome that? How do we overcome that? We overcome it by dwelling on the truth and not on fiction. We overcome it by dwelling on truth, not on fiction. Don't you think a lot of the things that we're afraid of are, are fictitious stories that we're making up in our mind? We allow the Holy Spirit to deal with the wounds of the past and to bring healing to that. And we live for today and let tomorrow worry about itself. Ultimately, overcoming fear is learning to trust in Jesus. And Jesus came, and what did he come? He brought peace. He brought peace. So you got to be here next week to hear the rest of that. All right. I'm going to get a drink of water. You can talk amongst yourselves for a second. Or this would be a great opportunity to send in a question that would make me laugh. <laughs> Not even going to look yet. I'm just going to keep going with our answers. When faced with violent persecution... Is it acceptable for believers to physically fight back? Is it acceptable to return violence for violence? Wow, this is a great question, right? And we really need to understand what we're talking about inside of this question. Uh, are we talking about Christians fighting for their nation in a justifiable war, like soldiers going overseas, you know, soldiers of World War II, things like that? Was, is that is that okay? Is that right or wrong when we're asking this question? Do we mean that? Well, a moment ago, I read to you Genesis uh, 9, 6, and I want to read to it to you again. It says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And, and most scholars believe that there is a difference between killing and murder. And I believe that as well. Why? Because the scripture just laid this out for us in this passage, right? Uh, there are there times when killing needs to happen, and God just laid it out. He said, look, if somebody's going around a rampage killing people, then his blood is required. 
And by man, that blood is going to have to be shed. Now, this might not seem popular in, in some of our culture, but when you look at Scripture, capital punishment was a viable option. And so what we instantly know, and you can read that as well in the New Testament, uh, you can turn to Romans 13, you can see that they bear not the sword in vain, the government, etc. So there is a difference between killing and murder. And the Bible makes this out uh, very plainly, not just in defense, but also in actions. That sometimes there was, there was uh, involuntary manslaughter where an accident happened and God made provisions for all of this thing. So we need to understand when we're talking about this, we're not talking about a soldier defending his country. We're not even talking about protecting ourselves from an intruder in our home. Uh, again, most theologians believe that the, the Bible makes uh, room uh, uh, for self-defense inside of our home, protect our family, uh, to protect our loved ones. Um, so we're just going to get that stuff out of the way. However, that's not the question that was asked. The question is, in the face of violent persecution, in the face of violent persecution. So someone is not breaking into my home to rob me at gunpoint. We are talking about someone who's performing violence based upon my faith in Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. Can I fight back? And unfortunately, based upon Scripture, I say unfortunately, and that shows my culture. It shows how we view it as Americans. Let me rephrase that. Based upon Scripture, the answer would be no. Based upon Scripture, the answer would be no. We have a lot of accounts in Scripture where Christians face violent persecution for the faith, and not one instance did they ever rise up and offered armed resistance for that persecution. Stephen, Peter, John, Paul, Silas, James, those are just the ones we read about by name that faced violent persecution. They faced violent persecution. They did not resist. Legend tells us that every single apostle of Jesus Christ was martyred for Jesus, except for John the Bap- or excuse me, except for John the Revelator, and they tried boiling him alive in oil, and he did not die. He's just a tough dude. So we know for a fact that so many of the early believers were tortured and murdered for their faith. And what did they do? They sang to their death. And what did they do? The apostles wrote to us and said, and encourage us, pray for the government, pray for those who are making a decision, obey the authorities. And they're writing that while the authorities are persecuting them and killing them. And here's what we need to understand. Being persecuted for your faith is different than being attacked for your wallet. And the reason is it's an opportunity for you to stand as a witness for Jesus The early church taught us that dying for your faith is a profound testimony of what you believe to be true. Those Christians singing to the Lord, refusing to recant their faith, and being brutally killed was a powerful testimony to their faith. And my question is, where would we be today if they had not given that testimony? One of the most overwhelming evidences to me that Jesus rose from the dead is that the 12 guys who were closest to him all died for their belief, and that he rose from the dead. And my question to you is this, would you die for a lie? If it wasn't true, would you give your life for a lie? These guys had nothing to gain from it, and yet they all were brutally murdered for their faith. What does that tell us? That's a powerful witness to you and to me, that Jesus is alive and that what they saw was real because people don't die for a lie. Now, in America, that's a really difficult truth for us to wrap our minds around. 
I, you can, even how I speak about it, it's like, oh man, I'd like to defend myself. Why? Because we have a culture of individuals where we believe that we have a right to defend ourselves. And, and the Bible gives us a lot of those rights. However, it's not an issue of protection. It's an issue of allegiance. And so when we resist violence with violence, we forfeit an opportunity to take a stand and confess Jesus. And in Matthew 10, 33, Jesus speaks. He says, but whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father in heaven. Where would the church be today if Paul took up arms instead of taking a beating? Why don't you think about that for a second? Where would we be today if Paul took up arms instead of taking a beating? You can read about how he suffered for his faith time and time again. He was beaten. He was shipwrecked. He was left hungry. And those scars on his body left a testimony to you and me that Jesus is alive. Amen? All right, let's go to some questions on, man, you sent a bunch of them. Who's older, you or Charity? <laughs> I got to go home with her. I can't say that. <laughs> Who's your favorite deacon? Oh, that's a good one. Let's go with that one for a little bit. Okay. That's like saying, what's your favorite kid? But I will say this, their wives are definitely the better half. Amen? Yeah. Okay. All right. Why do you look so fresh today? That, that's a new one. That's a new one. Do you need OSU gear for the Bedlam game? Of course not. I'm not a... No. Awesome. All right, you guys keep working on it. I'm going to go to some more. How can you learn to be content in every season just as Paul was? Wow, that's a great question, isn't it? Contentment is ultimately founded on who I am, not what I have. Philippians 4, 10 through 13, this is Paul, he's writing. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received uh, your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret to facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul is saying in this passage, he says, man, I've had plenty and I have had need and I have learned the secret to being content. And right up front, based out of this passage, we know that living in contentment is not obvious because he says it is a secret. So this whole concept of how do I live with contentment is not going to be easy for any of us to do. We need to understand that right up front. He says it's a secret. So it's not easy to be content because we often see our outside circumstances start to affect our contentment. So what we know from this passage is contentment is knowing that in the Lord I can do all things. Now, does that mean I can go win a football game? This is my big pet peeve. We stumbled on my pet peeve. When we put you know, Philippians 4.13 on our face when we go play a football game, that is not what we're talking about here. Paul's in prison when he's writing this letter to us. He's in prison when he's talking about doing all things. He's, right, he's in prison when he's talking about being content. So what is Paul trying to say? What are the all things that Paul speaks of? He's speaking of, I can thrive in any situation I am in. As he's in chains, he's thriving. And you know how we know that to be true? Because in prison, God was speaking to his heart, and he was writing down words that you and I are still reading 2,000 years later. Paul 
was thriving in prison, but he had chains on his hands. Paul was thriving in prison, but he did not have his freedom. So when he says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength, what he's saying is, he says, whatever situation in, I can thrive. Therefore, what we are learning from this is that contentment is a mental discipline that whatever situation I'm in, I choose to focus on Christ. I choose to focus on his strength. I choose to focus on his power. Then I can thrive in that moment. So how does Christ become that person to you? How do you have that mental discipline in order to face whatever situation that you're in and thrive? Through the renewing of your mind with the word. See, I think what happens for a lot of us is the reason why we're not in contentment is because we renew our mind constantly with our struggles and our tribulations. We're not renewing our mind with the word. We're not allowing this to open up and speak to us and say, you know what? God's never going to leave me and forsake me. God's going to make sure that I go down the road that at the end it's for my good. God's already went before me and prepared the steps and the plan. And so what happens is we are renewing our mind with our trash instead of renewing our mind with the hope that we receive in this word. So his word tells me that he supplies every one of my needs. So when I come to an apparent unmet need, I know that God knows better than what I think I know about my needs. Have you ever thought about that? Where you're there and you're like, God, I need you to come through. I need a new car. And then we don't get the new car. God knows what we need better than we do. God knows we don't need the payment that comes with that car. God knows we don't need the speeding ticket we're going to get because our car barely breaks 55 and that new one's going to go like 105. We're going to test that dude out. All right? God knows what we need better than we do. His word tells me that there's a heaven and that's going to be a better day with him. So even though today's tough and I don't know how to get out of this situation, I trust that I know that I'm going to have a better tomorrow with him. His word tells me he works at all things for my good. So my tough situation, I, I don't see the good out of it, but I trust that my God is good. Discontentment is exactly the opposite. I'm focusing on what I don't have. I'm focusing on what others have. I'm focusing on the position I'm in. I'm not focusing on Jesus. So in my moment of need, I know the Lord is strengthening me. Now, here's what I want you to see. Strength training always causes soreness. It always causes resistance. There's a struggle, but I'm stronger at the end of it. And that's the exact same thing. Paul would not have been Paul if God had not led him into the dungeon a couple times. And so you might be what feels like in the dungeon of life. But God has placed you there to strengthen you, and you can be content. So we're not talking about some transcendent state of mind where we're just like, oh, da, da, that's not what we're talking about. Contentment is mental discipline. Contentment is that place where we come and we say, you know what, God, I'm choosing today to renew my mind with the word instead of renewing my mind with the trash. Is there such a thing as a good lie? Is there such a thing as a good lie? You know what? Since we're having fun this morning, let's take a vote. If you think that it's okay that there are certain situations where there are a good lie, raise your hand. Don't be afraid. Okay? Raise your hand if you think that you should never lie, no matter what. No certain situation, there should ever be a lie. Raise your hand. Okay? All right, put your hands down. Raise your hand if you didn't raise your hand at all. Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay? All right. If you raise your hand, thank you for taking a stand. Man, I got to vote. I'm going to vote right now. I've not thought about this. I think that there are situations where there's such a thing as a good lie. All right, you ready? This one's going to be deep. 
This question has literally stumped theologians, people who study the Bible for 2,000 years. There are Christians who love Jesus, who love the word, who believe everything it says to be true and want to honor God with their life based upon this word and say, there are situations where there are such a thing as a good lie. And there are Christians on the other side who say, no matter what situation, no matter what the outcome may be, you should never, ever, 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 ever tell a lie. I want to tell you this, that I can't not answer this question for you because men a lot smarter than me have studied this and they don't know the answer. Uh, This question is one you have to answer for yourself, but what I want to do is I want to give you both sides of this. I want to give you some perspective and some Bible verses, and you're going to be more confused when we're done than you are right now, all right? (laughs) Here you go. Now, let's just start out with doing some scripture. First thing we understand is that God is truth. God calls us to walk in truth and to worship in truth and to live in the truth, okay? Exodus 26 says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Uh, you can go read Proverbs uh, 6, 16 through 19, talks about how God uh, does not uh, like lying. And Revelations 21, 8 tells us that liars go to hell. So you can see that God does not like lying. He hates lying. And literally, people who lie, the Bible says liars go to hell. All right, now this is a big deal because we, lying or murder, in God's eyes, it doesn't matter. Lying is lying, period. The reason is important. The reason why God says that lying is so sinful is because God is holy, and part of his holiness is his word, which is always true. Go read about it. Hebrews 6 tells us that God cannot lie. He's incapable of telling a lie. Everything he says has to happen. We've talked about this a little bit. God said, Austin, spread wings, man. I'm going to be like, you know, why? Because God's word, no matter how ridiculous it sounds, it will come to pass. Why? Because God's word is true. God's word is powerful. And because he stands upon his word, everything he says is true and will come to pass. So lying is an attack on the holiness of God. When we tell lies, We are attacking the holiness of God. Pause right there. I want you to notice when we're talking about murder, we're attacking also the holiness of God, the image of God. So a lot of sin, we say, why is that a sin? Because it's going against the character of God. Lying goes against the character of God. Therefore, God cannot stand lying. On top of that, God relates lying to demonic work of Satan. In John 8, 44, Jesus tells us that Satan is the father of lies. So as Christians, we're called to live in truthfulness. I want you to catch that more than anything else. We are called to live in truthfulness. However, applying that truth to real life circumstances becomes very problematic. So we know lines of sin. Well, what about putting up a beware of dog sign in your yard if you don't have a dog? (laughs) Seriously, let's get very black and white for a second. Is that deception? Absolutely. Is that lying? Yeah, it is. What if you put up a like a a home security deal in your window? Like, hey, we're protected by ADT. I bought the line off eBay or the sticker off eBay for five dollars, and you don't have ADT. You're lying. You're telling them that you are protected by a company that you're actually not paying for. Okay, well, that's kind of silly, also. What about a woman who feels like she's being followed by a guy? you know, like going through the parking lot to her car and she feels uncomfortable. So she pulls out her phone and pretends to call her husband even though she's single. 
Good question, ain't it? What about lying in the time of war when I get captured by the enemy? Hey, where are your friends at? I don't know. I mean, should I tell them? Well, hey, look, you know, I'm a Christian, so I don't lie. They're right over the hill. Go get them. You know what I mean? Like, what about, a, what about a, a, a secret birthday party? Hey, what are they doing for me? I don't know. We, how many of you have done that in church? Like, Bob got something for my birthday. I, I don't know, right? So obviously, I know some of this seems trivial. Some of this is real serious. Some of it's trivial. But we see that living this out isn't nearly as easy as it sounds to be. Never lie. And then we got the beware of dog sign in our yard. Right? It's deception. So, liars go to hell. Would I go to hell for doing that? Mm. To make the problem even more complicated and to make the, the situation even more serious is we have biblical examples of somebody lying and then God seems to bless them for lying. Let me give you two. Pharaoh demanded that the Hebrew uh, midwives kill the babies born in Egypt. You can go read about this in Exodus chapter number one. The Hebrew people are exploding in population. Pharaoh says, we got to put an end to this. He brings in the midwives, the one who deliver the babies. And he says, look, I need you to kill all the males. Every new male that's born, I need you to kill them. And the, and the uh, midwives uh, disobey Pharaoh. They lie to him. They're devious to him. And what does the Bible say? God blesses them with their own children. So they lied, and then they're blessed. Rahab, the prostitute uh, in the land of Canaan, whenever the Israelites are going to come, the Israelites uh, send spies. You can read about this in Joshua 2, and then you can get this confirmed in Hebrews 11. Um, They're in the promised land. Rahab's a prostitute. She hides the spies and lies to the officers looking for them, and the Bible commends her for her actions. And she's later on in the lineage of Jesus, and James commends her faith for hiding the spies. So now this is a really hard question. So, so when you look at this, Scripture is very clear that the command is always tell the truth. God is truth, lying is demonic, and yet then here you have two people in two different passages who are commended for their dishonesty. And there's some people say, look, that really weren't commended. It happened, and God just works all things out for his good. So no matter what situation is, you should always tell the truth and trust God for the results. And that's a very legitimate interpretation of Scripture. And here's what we know for sure is that telling the truth will never, ever, 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 ever be a sin. It's never a sin to tell the truth. Even if you die for telling the truth in extreme cases like war, you know that you're telling the truth. However, there are others who have said in response to all this scripture that there appears to be a difference between falsehood and lying. And that's where I would fall into, I believe. I want to read you a snippet of an article from a, a, a man by the name of Sam Storms. He's, he lives in Oklahoma. He's a, he's a very smart man, studies the word. He says this, it appears then that there are occasions when deception is ethically permissible, but note that not all falsehood are lies. A lie is an intentional falsehood that violates someone's right to know the truth. But there are cases in which people forfeit their right to know the truth. So the question is not whether uh, it is ever morally permissible to lie, but rather what is a lie? And that's a good question. What is the definition of a lie? And he goes on to say this, a lie is an intentional declaration or communication of a falsehood designed to deceive someone that has a moral and legal right to know the truth. 
A lie is telling untruth to someone whom you are morally and legally obligated to speak the truth. There are, however, certain occasions in which you are not under that obligation to tell the truth, such as in times of war, criminal assault, and so on. I want to be certain that no one responds to this article with anything less than fervent commitment to the truth. And arguing as I have that there may be occasions when communication of a falsehood is ethically permissible, I am not suggesting that Christians should be lax or casual in their commitment to the truth, because the truth sets us free, according to John 8. Our goal should never be to wiggle our way around the truth or search for an ethical loophole. When the psalmist describes a person who is privileged to sojourn in God's tent and to dwell with him on his holy hill, among the qualities cited is truth in his heart, refusing to slander with his tongue and being the sort of person who swears to his own heart and does not change. He who does not change, David insists, shall never be moved. So I think what Sam Storms does is a good job is actually defining what a lie is. A true lie is when you're speaking falsehood to someone you are morally or legally obligated to tell the truth to. I am morally obligated to always speak the truth to my wife. I am morally obligated to always speak the truth to you. I'm morally obligated to speak the truth to the people in this community. I'm morally obligated to speak the truth in our boardroom. I'm morally obligated. So at any of these moments, I try to wiggle around the truth. I'm absolutely walking in sin. Now, when somebody comes to me, and says, hey, do you know what John bought me for my birthday? And I'm like, eh, that's not, it's not an issue of morality. That's not an issue of deception. That's not a lie. And I hope that that kind of breaks down uh, for you um, kind of that viewpoint. I hope that helps. Helps you out a little bit. All right, let's go back to see if you guys sent in some more questions. What's going to be your reaction when Oklahoma State wins Saturday against OU? <laughs> Well, my OU answer is there's a lot of faith in this room to believe that. <laughs> my eyes tell me I wouldn't be surprised because apparently we don't know how to hold on to the football anymore. We have lost, you know, we have lost ball control, right? We need to learn some ball control. Did God create the world round or flat? Oh my gosh. I'm going to move on before that gets me in trouble. <laughs> Is the Adam's apple called the Adam's apple because Adam are the people? Are the apple? Man, you're confusing me. What's your opinion on teenage dating? Yes, let's talk about that for a second. Come on. All right, gentlemen. I'll <laughs> just sit down. I'll look over here. I'm just kidding. I won't do that to you. Teenage dating. Let me give you some, oh, I'm glad you asked this question. <laughs> Teenage dating. Now, let's talk about a dating relationship for just a second, okay? With dating, and this goes not just for teenagers, it goes for everybody if you're dating. Dating relationships are going to end one of two ways, either in marriage or a breakup. Now, we're real lackadaisical when we jump on the bandwagon of, hey, let's get in a relationship with somebody. I had a person, and this is going to sound extreme, but if you have lived more than about five years of your life, you know that this statement is true. When I was a kid in Sunday school, uh, our Sunday school teacher was talking to us one day. Uh, we were probably about 14, 15 in that area. And he said, look, when you get into a relationship with someone, you take and give them an emotional gun to point to your head, and at any time they can pull the trigger. 
Now, that sounds extreme, but how many of you know people have been wrecked in relationships? Right? And that is a lot of truth to that. So, here, I want you to put that two together. I know when I go to get into a dating relationship, this is either going to end in a breakup or this is going to end in marriage. And the danger is very high that this person can deeply wound me. So what are some things I need to do? Number one, I need to guard my heart. And what does that mean to guard my heart? It means that I don't give myself away to someone too soon with my love. Right? Just because I'm in a dating relationship with somebody doesn't mean I have to love them. Definitely means I don't have to tell them that. I need to guard my heart. Because as soon as I start telling them I love them, I'm just starting to put more ammunition in the gun for them to shoot me with later. And a lot of us, we have put ourselves in a position, and we have given someone that gun who has not earned that right yet. So you can get in a relationship, and you, do, you have to guard your heart. And then the second thing is you need to define that relationship. Say, look, son, look, ma'am, because let me tell you, they're, uh, boys and girls are both crazy, right? <laughs> they are. Don't get me started on that rabbit trail. You need to say, look, I'm interested in who you are, but my standards are high. Now, my standards aren't about looks, and my standards aren't about superficial, stupid stuff. My standards are about morality and about your faith. I will only allow myself to be in a relationship with somebody of character, and I don't know if you're that person yet. Please don't be offended by that. I just don't know yet. So I, I, think, I think you have all the qualities there from everything I can tell. You, you look like a good person, but we're going to take this thing slow. And then you give it about six months, and you just see who they are. You wait for the third thing, and that's for them to be tested. Because you don't know who somebody is until they have been tested. You know how we know that? Because God allows us to be tested. God told Abraham, hey, go sacrifice your son. God never intended for him to sacrifice Isaac. He needed to see what was inside of Abraham. And Abraham needed to see what was inside of Abraham. So you don't get into a relationship with somebody. You don't let your, your, your love go to them until they've been tested. You need to see what kind of person they are. They need to experience some stress. You need to have a disagreement. There needs to be an argument there. There needs to be something where that person lets down their guard and you really see what's inside of them. And then once they get to that point and they pass the test, you see that they can walk in character. They know how to apologize when they do something's wrong. You see that they don't fly off the handle and start hitting you. Then... And only then can you start considering telling that person that you love them. And then you have that other conversation. Say, look, you know, I've been watching you for the last six months, and you have passed the test. You're a good person. You're a good person. I've seen you honor God with your life, and I've seen you live that out. I think this is, this is something that we can, we can pursue farther. And then at that point, don't tell them you love them. Wait a little longer. I'm just kidding. All right? At that point, you can go a little bit deeper in the relationship, and you can progress on to the next level. All right. What time is it? We got time for one more question. I want to look. We're going to go with this one. God is the beginning and the end. Where did evil come from? If from God, why? If not, how? It's a great question. I think it's a question that all of us have wrestled with from time to time. And this is how I would answer that question to you. We need to first define what evil is. Evil is not a thing. Evil is a concept and a reality. All right, so I want you to start to separate that idea. 
And we know that because good is a concept and a reality. So we can look at actions and we can call them good or we can call them evil based upon our perception of that reality. Let me give you a couple of instances. We can look at a, at a mother raising her children, right? Taking care of them, providing for them, nursing them, changing their diet, everything it takes to raise a child. And we say, man, that is a good thing. That is a good thing. And then we look at someone who commits mass murder and we say, man, that's an evil thing. But notice that I cannot quantify good. I cannot take and quantify evil. I cannot take and put good inside of a jar and show it to you, nor can I take evil and put it inside of a jar and show it to you. Good and evil are both concepts. They're both perceptions of a reality. Therefore, no one created evil. We are evil simply because there's a void of good in our life. God is good. Anything void of God is evil. Now, I don't know if you believe me. You're kind of like, eh, no. Think about this. Jesus told us that all good things come from the Father above. So we know anything good that's happened in our life is because of God. He said it rains on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. That rain is coming on the righteous and the unrighteous. God is sending the good things. So anything void of God leads to evil. So, by that definition, evil is simply an absence of God. Now, what is interesting in this question is, where did our concept of good actually come from? And, and we wouldn't know what good was if it wasn't for God. Therefore, we know what evil is when we see something that goes against the nature of God. Same thing could be said of sin. Who created sin? The answer is no one created sin. No one created sin. Sin is a byproduct of missing the mark of God's goodness. Sin isn't an inanimate object that we can hold in our hands. Sin is a byproduct of free will and human choice to disobey God. God didn't create evil. Satan didn't create evil. Evil is a void of the goodness of God. Evil is an action that is contrary to the character of God. I want to close with this if the worship team wants to come back. Obviously, today there's, not, there's a lot of questions we didn't get to. Perhaps I'll even answer some of those on our Word Wednesday. But I do want to close with this. I want to close with a question of my own. And that question is this. Why is life so complicated? I mean, seriously, why is life so complicated? We didn't have one question on that list today that was an easy question to answer. These questions are heavy. There's a weight to them. There's a seriousness to them. I worked a lot on this message over the last several weeks, preparing for these questions, studying, because I wanted to give you the opportunity to ask your questions and to meet the needs of the congregation where we're at. One thing I think that is obvious is that these are complicated. Abortion, right? violence, anxiety, all these things are heavy topics that we're facing. Why are we facing these topics? And the answer is this, because we live in a broken world. Our world is broken. The reason why we have to come and we have to start searching the scriptures, the reason why we have these questions that we wrestle with, the reason why we have topics that make us uncomfortable is because we live in a broken world. When we ask these questions, we know that something isn't right. Something is off. Something is off. Let's go to the question of anxiety. We live with 
that emotion of anxiety and we know like man i don't want to live with this this is not right it shouldn't be this way i shouldn't wrestle with this and you're right it shouldn't it shouldn't no woman carrying life in her womb should have to come to the place where she decides am i going to feed the children i have alive at the cost of the one that's in my womb or am I going to take food away from the ones that are alive to feed the one in my womb? Nobody should have to come and even begin to think about that. Shouldn't have been there. Should never happen. We shouldn't be at a place where we're questioning, God, did you create evil? Because I see evil happening everywhere. And I don't know where it came from, and it's, it's breaking my heart. Shouldn't have to ask that question. We, we shouldn't have to guard our kids and talk to them so much about dating and knowing that how evil people are and that they can hurt and break our kids if they get into the relationship with the wrong one. We shouldn't have to ask that, but we do. Why? Because we're living in a broken world. But the good news is that Jesus came to take the brokenness and make it right. So why is the world complicated? Because we broke it. But Jesus is the constant in that storm. I was with some pastors this weekend, and one of them said the most profound thing I've heard in a long time. And I know I've said it. A lot of preachers, myself included, have said, God takes all your broken pieces and he puts it back together. And we mean well when we say that. But the guy was like, you know, he said, that's not right. Because the Bible says he makes us into a new creation. The old is gone, the new is here. And because of that hope of a new creation, we have hope for a future. Jesus will replace all the wrongs of life. And how do, we, how do we acquire that new creation? By faith and confession. Romans 10, starting verse number eight says, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jews and Greeks. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The good news of Jesus is that he comes and he saves us. And when he saves us, he makes us into new creations. And then once we're in him, we have the pattern of how we should live life. How do I approach life the same way Jesus did? How do I love my wife? How do I love my husband? The same way Jesus loves you. And he gave everything. How do I raise my kids? Just like the song said a second ago, how God's a good father to us. We learn how to be good fathers to our kids because we're reciprocating what we've experienced from our Father in heaven. How do we walk ethically in our jobs and our professions the same way that Jesus walked through this world when he had opportunities not to pay his taxes? You know what? He paid them. When he had the opportunity to rip people off, you know what? He didn't do that. Why? because he was living to honor God. And that's how we approach life. 
That's why I believe in this so much, because asking questions of life will lead us to the answer, and the answer is always Jesus. Now, the catch is, today, we answered some questions, and I tried to give you biblically the answers to those. It's not for head knowledge. It's for heart application. It's for life change. For life change. So what questions are you wrestling with in your life? What things have you been struggling with? I'll tell you, Jesus is the hope, and he's the answer. You have to turn to him. Will you please stand with me this morning as you stand?